0: What is, uh, what do you want me to say? You have found
1: Chameleon, Season 3, Wild Boys,
2: a production of Campside Media. Oh. <laughs> a heads up
1: this show contains discussions of an eating disorder. If you or someone you know is struggling with eating disorders, please listen with care.
3: It was March of 2004, and seven months had passed since the Bush Boys showed up in my hometown. In the seven months, the town had rallied, the media had circused, but now things were kind of quiet. The only people really talking about the Bush boys would be the senior citizens. They'd see them acting strange downtown around the natural food store and call the police and say, I saw some youths, there's two of them, one of them's too skinny.
1: They're always together, they're never apart, they're always
3: together. Corporal Henry Prosay was the cop fielding most of these calls. And it's true the boys were always together all those seven months, but now for once, they weren't because will the 16 year old was in the back of Pro se's police car I think he I literally think he was within days or weeks of starving himself to death he was he was that bad like he you know he couldn't even walk he was he was just shuffling around. Will's health had declined to the point where se had invoked Canada's Mental Health Act to bring him into custody. And now, they were headed to the one place Will had been singularly focused on avoiding all these months, the hospital. se looked at Will in the rear view and told him that at the hospital, they'd be able to find a way to get his weight up, finally get some food into him. I told se I heard he taunted Will on the way to the hospital, told him that they were going to feed him burgers when he got there.
1: I don't know, I may have, I may have said that, but uh, he's going to have to eat something, that's for sure, a right. cheeseburger would probably be a good idea.
3: <laughs> this was an idea that Will found terrifying. Will had an intense phobia of putting anything that he considered to be unpure in his body. He was a strict fruitarian, and at the hospital he knew he'd almost certainly be forced to deviate from that. He was almost hyperventilating in the back seat.
1: He went so unwillingly, because his biggest fear to going into a hospital was getting tube fed and getting force fed.
3: Tammy Ryder, the boy's surrogate mother in town. Shortly after Will was apprehended, her phone rang.
1: Tom um, actually called me, freaking out, and said, Will was apprehended by the police. And basically, you gotta do something or whatever.
3: She grabbed her keys and drove across town, up the hill to Vernon Jubilee Hospital, feeling relieved that something was finally being done, but also feeling a little guilty.
1: It was sort of a turning thing, a betrayal.
3: What was the betrayal?
1: Um, I think of just getting them telling someone where they were or something, like helping them find... I just remember wanting to get him in the hospital
3: as well. Tammy hinted that it might have been she who tipped off pro se. She might have said something like, Hey, Will's at the store by himself. Now might be a good time to pick him up. She knew taking him to the hospital would save his life. But she also knew he'd feel betrayed if he knew she was involved.
1: And I remember just feeling like such an overwhelming amount of pressure to... Because here's this kid who trusted me. Yeah. And but I was also kind of turned a bit on them, and to get them to get help.
3: And when Tammy gets to the hospital and walks into Will's room, as she feared, Will is in hysterics.
1: He was panicked, panicked, and they were going to give him poison-type stuff, like real food. And I mean, <laughs> hospital food is real, is poison, but but you know what I mean? Like they were going to force feed him or something. And that's what he was worried about. He didn't want to eat any of the regular food.
3: Will was sobbing, crying to Tammy, saying, please, I just want to go home. I'll eat their food. I just want to go home. Tammy sat with him and tried to calm him down, assuring him that no one will force feed him. If he works with the hospital staff, there must be some sort of compromise where they can find a way to get his weight up without making him violate his beliefs. As Tammy sat consoling Will, neither of them knew it, but everything was about to change. Because hundreds of miles away, the man who would uncover Will and Tom's greatest secret was boarding a plane, and he was headed for the Okanagan. From Campside Media, this is Chameleon, season three, Wild Boys. I'm Sam Mullins. This is part three, The Journalist. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com, code PROGRAM.
2: You're listening to Chameleon from Campside Media.
3: Back in November, there was a very vigorous initial media frenzy about the boys. People in Vernon were getting calls from places like CNN and ABC News. But when the boys admitted that they weren't as bush as they'd originally let on, the media attention sort of fell off a cliff. One headline in the Vancouver Sun said, read it here, the non-story of the Bush boys of Vernon. But as the media collectively moved on to the next thing, on the other side of the country, one journalist was biding his time.
4: Like, I like to come at things just as a journalist when things do cool down.
3: This is Timothy Sawa.
4: When everybody's after something, you're just one of, you know... 30 people trying to get the same thing. So when, the, when it kind of dies down, to me, that's when I like to come into a situation.
3: In 2004, Timothy was a young journalist working for a short-lived CBC show called Disclosure. It was sort of like Canada's 60 Minutes or Dateline. And this job was his first big break.
4: I mean, I was just a young guy then. It was my first experience with investigative television.
3: And back in November, at the height of the Bush boy media frenzy, Timothy was at the CBC in Winnipeg.
4: Sitting at a a table in a common area and at disclosure, reading about this sort of curious thing happening in this small town in the middle of, you know, British Columbia. These boys walking out of the woods with this wild story.
3: It had all the hallmarks of the kind of story that
4: he's drawn to. Everybody wanted to talk to them. Everybody wanted to know what the real story was or if this, their story was the real story.
3: So Timothy kind of bookmarks the story in his head and a few months go by.
4: I just kind of let it cool off for a while and chose my moment because I never stopped being curious about those guys.
3: Finally, by March, the frenzy had died down. So he decided, now's the time. And uh, I just said to our bosses, we should get on this. And soon enough, Timothy
4: was on an airplane. I didn't have a return ticket. It was like, go there and spend, you know, as much time as you can and see if you can find out more and see if
3: you can convince them to tell their stories publicly. Timothy really had his work cut out for him. If Timothy was going to succeed where so many other journalists had failed and gain access to the boys, he was going to have to go on a real charm offensive.
4: My goal was just to spend as much time with him as possible, to kind of you know, build
3: a a relationship, build some trust. So Timothy arrives in Vernon, tasked with earning the trust of the least trusting boys in Canada, convincing them to do seemingly the last thing they would ever want to do, get them to participate in a TV interview for a national audience. Oh yeah, and he only had a few days to pull this off. Through Tammy, Timothy was able to get Tom on the phone. And for their first hangout, they made plans to, what else? go shopping for some fruit together.
4: For fruits and vegetables that he was gonna then take to
3: his brother in the hospital. As they walked among the papayas and the peaches, he starts to casually get the measure of Tom. As Tom begins to tell him their now very well-known story.
4: And of course, in the back of my mind, I'm, you know, I'm skeptical. On one hand, on the other hand, I'm listening and I'm absorbing and I'm and I'm I genuinely cared about whatever his story was.
3: They left Nature's Fair and arrived at the hospital with a bag of fruit in hand and walked into Will's room, where Timothy got his first good look at will.
4: I mean, I just can't even I mean, he was wearing sweatshirts and stuff when I met him so you couldn't really see his frame, but you could see his face. I mean, he looked, he looked like... He could be close to death, um, but he just seemed lost. He really did.
3: Over the next few days, Timothy spent as much time as he could with the boys, which meant he was spending a lot of time at the hospital. The staff who'd been tasked with keeping Will safe were not into Timothy's presence. They were sort of like, sorry, who are you? What are you doing? And then finally, sir, you have to leave. And I remember the hospital asking us not to come in anymore. They didn't...
4: You know, anyways, they, they were concerned about him, and so were we, but we also wanted to tell a story, so we were trying to figure out the best way to do that.
3: Getting Will on camera for a full interview seemed increasingly unlikely. Also, the ethics of interviewing a minor in his condition seemed dodgy. So it seemed like the story, if it was even going to happen, would have to be centered on Tom. But Tom was so unlike anyone Timothy had ever met, he couldn't really get a handle on what made that guy tick or which tactics might convince him to do the full interview.
4: Tom was a curious fellow. I mean, he had this kind of really
3: strong sense of free will. It was clear that Tom was not the type of person that you could pressure into doing anything. Like when he talked to Tom about Will's health, Timothy would be like, you know, obviously your brother needs help, right? But shockingly to Timothy, Tom wasn't concerned at all that Will wasn't eating. He was more concerned that there were people trying to force his brother to eat. You know, he was kind of like,
4: you know, it's his choice to do what he wanted, no matter what the consequences were. And if that's what he wants to do, then I support him. It didn't seem like a healthy dynamic. That didn't seem healthy to me.
3: When Tammy found out that the CBC was trying to get an interview with the boys, she was fully on board, trying to do what she could on her end, hoping that if they got on TV, maybe a family member would see them and claim them. But even with Tammy's help, Timothy was worried that he wasn't making headway.
4: You know, he seemed to have days when he was more interested in meeting with us or talking to us, and days when he was less interested.
3: So Timothy was throwing everything at the wall. But it seemed like the stickiest argument, the one that Tom responded to best, was a sort of practical one. They needed
4: identification so that they could get jobs and uh, or social
3: assistance. So he focused there. After initially resisting Tammy's efforts to get the boys out and making their way in the world, Tom seemed to have finally come around. Though he appeared flippant about nearly everything else, there was one thing he increasingly craved, his independence, a chance to make a life for himself and his brother, which meant he needed a job. And that meant he needed a government ID. So Timothy was like, hey, a lot of people watch this program. If you need help, something like this can get you noticed.
4: If you tell people, more people will hear it, and maybe we'll help you. Maybe you'll find other people who will help you by telling your story. Um, And that was my pitch. I just kind of made that pitch over and over again.
3: Tom, as ever, was entirely unpredictable.
4: He said yes, like 20 times. (laughs) And then he would say no. And then he'd say maybe. And then he'd say, okay, I think so. And then he'd say, I need another day. And we would go back and forth and back and forth like this all week. So when he finally said yes, I didn't know. Until we pressed record on that television camera, I didn't know it was going to happen until it happened.
2: And then it did. You're listening to Chameleon from Campside Media.
1: Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that. Trading in the family home to begin
4: a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine and this is The Price of Paradise. The island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now wherever you listen to podcasts.
3: The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover inside the house there were the bodies of two women—a story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true.
0: I am just praying to God this is
3: a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is "Blood Is Thicker: The Hargan Family Killings." Listen to "Blood Is Thicker: The Hargan Family Killings" wherever you get your
2: podcasts. You're listening to Camelia from Campside Media.
1: Good evening and welcome to Disclosure. Our first story tonight is a good old fashioned mystery.
3: When the Disclosure interview finally aired, it was appointment viewing in Vernon. I remember sitting at a TV tray watching with my mom. If I'm honest, most of my memories of watching the Disclosure piece are just of me experiencing the sweet ecstasy of seeing my small town on national TV. Sure, I was curious to finally see an interview with the boys and the whole town was anxious to finally hear one of them speak publicly. But like a true Rube, I just remember sitting there the whole time, my eyes glued to the background being like, that's the courthouse downtown. Oh my God, they're at the library now. That's the strip mall where I get my hair cut. But for the rest of Vernon, and I suppose the rest of Canada and whomever else might have been following this strange story for so long, this was the moment where finally, after all these months, and after being cordoned off by Tammy and the gang, this was the first time that the world would see the Bush Boys and hear them tell their story in their own words.
1: Here's Gillian Findlay and the first TV interview with the young men known
2: as the Bush Boys of British Columbia. Do you understand why people are so intensely curious about you and your brother? I think
0: so. People are curious about anything that's unusual.
3: I remember seeing Tom for the first time on the screen. He was wearing a plaid shirt. He had shoulder-length blonde hair and a patchy blonde beard. And being in high school at the time, I knew a thing or two about having a patchy blonde beard. And that was the thing. He looked and seemed a lot more normal than I expected him to. In my mind, I was kind of imagining like an SNL sketch rendering of a caveman, but he looked sort of like me or my friends. I talked to Jillian Finley. She's the journalist who was interviewing him for this disclosure piece. And she told me that she'd never met anyone like him. He had this mix of intelligence and the sort of dreamy quality to him. She said he seemed like a lost boy, like one of Peter Pan's crew, the boys who lived in the wild and never quite grew up. Do you
2: think you're unusual? Uh, I, from
0: my understanding, yes, uh, the kind of lifestyle we lived is very unusual. It's definitely
2: not the one most people live. They claim to have been raised in complete isolation by parents who wanted nothing to do with civilization. They didn't
0: see. The way society was living is the best way to live. I've always felt like, you know, there's a world around me that's different from mine. It's something I was happy not to be a part of for many
3: years. As I watched this story as a teenager, I remember actively trying to decide if I believed their story. Tom seems very comfortable on screen. He has an answer for everything. But then I'd see something like, oh, he tucked his hair behind his ear. I wonder. Is that a tell?
0: My parents do not wish to say where they are. They do not wish for me to say where they are. And uh, I see no reason why I shouldn't respect that.
3: Tom and Will had confirmed that since being in Vernon, they'd been in contact with their parents. So the question that everyone in Vernon was fixated on was, if your parents know that your kid brother in the hospital, nearly starving to death, why are they not stepping in to help here?
0: Well, um... I don't think that they thought he was going to die.
2: Well, the doctors have said that. That was in the committal order. They were worried for his life. Did they ever tell you that?
0: Well, they have to be in that
2: way. It's it's their protocol. And you don't believe them?
3: The coy smile that Tom wears for most of this interview disappears with this line of questioning.
0: Uh, Well, no, I, I just have no way to know that there's no like statistical case studies that would show that He's going to die.
2: Six foot one and 84 pounds, and you have doctors who've committed him to the hospital. What's not to believe there?
0: Uh,
2: that he's going to die for certain.
3: You can tell that Tom's getting annoyed.
2: Do you understand why people don't get this? Why this upsets people like Tammy and others?
0: No, it doesn't seem uh, rational.
3: As a town, we'd heard so much about Will. We read so much about the shape that he was in, but we'd never seen the boy at the center of all this. The Disclosure crew wasn't allowed to film Will in the hospital, so they sent Tom in with the camera to film the two of them hanging out.
2: He doesn't like being photographed, but he did agree to have his brother take these pictures.
3: It's here that we see Will for the first time. And he is, as everyone has described, extremely gaunt. His eyes hollow. He seems a little dazed, like he's moving and talking with the parking brake on, halting and slow. Will turns to the camera, holding up a self-portrait drawn on printer paper, tall and thin, collarbones protruding, even in the picture. Above his likeness, he's written in messy block letters, Skinny Raw Foodist Will.
0: Everybody, meet Skinny Raw Foodist Will. Do you see a resemblance?
3: There's a panning shot of a heaping bounty of mangoes. Peaches, hummus, a bowl of nuts. There's a straw sticking out of a coconut. Will eats an avocado with purpose, as if to say, look, all Will does is eat. Look how much eating. There's some footage of the two brothers playing cards. They pass the camera back and forth, getting increasingly interesting angles on their card game, like two kids with a camera. Will sighs performatively and says,
0: Oh, I can't wait to get out of here.
3: The boys had spent months downplaying how dire Will's condition was. They both thought it was ridiculous that he was even hospitalized now. And now it feels like they're trying to convince everyone else. Like they're making a film titled, Actually, Will is Fine. It all sort of feels like fiction because, in fact, it is. We can see Will with our own eyes now, and he doesn't look fine. And the story Tom is telling is just one version of many he's told. The boy's story had changed enough times that it was hard to know what to believe at this point. We never contacted the outside world, they said at first. And then, well, actually we'd go into town and rent movies sometimes. Or they'd say, we lived in the remote wilderness, untethered to society. And that became, well, actually we had a VCR and a computer and the internet. By this point, you can even hear Tammy starts to double clutch. Listen to Tammy's answer to this very simple question.
2: You don't know whether you believe them or not, do you? No, I do believe I do believe
1: them that they, um, I mean, I don't believe, I don't know what to believe because just like everybody else, I don't have concrete facts.
3: The boys were lying, but knowing how big the lie was, was difficult to gauge.
2: You're listening to Camelia from Campside Media.
5: You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In the
3: 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then-unheard-of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is cover-up The Conspiracy
1: Tapes.
2: You're listening to Camelia from Campside Media.
3: Another scene in the Disclosure episode shows the birthday party that Tammy threw for Tom back in January. Happy birthday, to Tom! Happy birthday to you! It's Tom's twenty-third birthday, and this is supposedly his first ever birthday party. His first bite of birthday cake. boy gets
2: the first piece.
3: The scene is one of the things that I remember the clearest. Seventeen years later, I remember thinking, "Wow, imagine never having had a birthday party before." But now I know that this was definitely not Tom's first birthday party. It was probably more like his 23rd. Okay,
0: Tom, let's see what it tastes like. <laughs> oh, don't do that to the
3: poor guy, he's gonna have to fake it. The look on everybody's face is pure excitement. Everyone at the hostel and Tammy who's there with her kids, they all just look so thrilled and happy to share this novel experience with Tom. But Tom just sits there smirking like he just told himself an inside joke. His expression reminds me of something Jillian, the host of Disclosure, told me she noticed about Tom.
2: There was a part of him that was sort of standing back and watching everybody watching him, and he kind of liked that. He was kind of enjoying, you know, sort of, I don't know if it's being at the center of the attention, but just having people confused about him, right? You know, he'd been watching the whole town react to him, and now he, you know, he just, now he had a television crew that was reacting to him.
3: And with this television crew and a national audience, Tom proceeds to put on a show.
2: Are are you and Will, perhaps, were you abducted by these people? Are um, they really your parents? I'm pretty
0: sure they are, because I have recognized certain features um, on me that match my parents, and I, I, I'm pretty
2: certain that Will, you know, is my real brother. Or that at least... You know, you're pretty certain. Has it crossed your mind that perhaps you're not? Um, well,
0: there's things maybe I'm suspicious about, but... Like what? Well, I guess maybe even their name is a little suspicious.
3: There's an unmistakable twinkle in Tom's eye when he brings up his parents' names, Mary and Joseph.
2: What makes you suspicious about their names? Well, the names of um,
0: the parents of Jesus. And... I think that maybe if they did change their names, that's a possibility because no one's been able to find them under those names.
3: No one's been able to find them under those names because they're made up. He's made up this whole story. Sometimes when you read a story closely though, you can find clues about the author. Like the Mary and Joseph thing, why those names? Is it because he sees himself as a Jesus figure? Or are his parents just like really religious and this is his wink to that? And he says he's from the deep bush. Is that because he grew up on a farm or something and he just would always joke with his brother about how they grew up in the middle of nowhere? And when he says his parents kicked them out because their diet was too radical, is that his way of saying that his parents don't understand him? Did they kick him out for something else? By the end of the episode, Tom's almost indignant that people aren't believing him.
2: By talking to us, he says he hopes the B.C. government will be moved to give him and Will the identification they need.
0: I feel like we, we are in an uncertain situation, and we deserve to have some kind of conclusion to it.
2: But Tom, people will say, well, if you want a conclusion to it, it's in your power. You know what you can do. No, you can bring a conclusion sure. to this in half an hour.
3: She's more right than she even knows. Tom says one thing that does feel true. He's told Jillian that he's talking about his parents. But now I think maybe he was talking about himself and his brother.
0: If someone knew that where they are, who they couldn't trust, then um, they wouldn't be able to maintain what they have. And I think that's what they want to do.
3: I think that's what they, the boys, want. For all the people of Vernon, like me at my TV tray, or Tammy, or Pro se, who wanted answers, clarity, or just something to be shaken loose by the CBC story, instead, after watching it, we were just left with a fresh batch of questions, the truth seemingly further than ever. After they finished their reporting, Timothy and Jillian hunkered down to cut the piece together.
4: Yeah, we went out there, we spent all this time kind of gathering all this material, we came back.
2: And um, we cut the piece, we put it together. Um, I remember we 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 already had a pretty tight deadline on that.
3: It was a shorter than usual turnaround on the episode, just 48 hours. There's only one episode left in the disclosure season after the story on the boys and they already had something prepared for their finale. But as it turned out that season finale would be scrapped and a new story would take its place. It would be about Tom and Will Green again, but it would be a much different story than the first. The day after the story aired, Gillian and Timothy were back in their office, working on the finale they planned.
2: So I remember it was sort of, you know, we were working late and just trying to get it done and get it finished. And we thought, okay, you know, that's it. You know, season's over, you know, uh, story's done. But then we got an email from somebody. It made us realize that, you know, that there there really was a very different story here.
4: Um, We got an email. He said, I think I know those guys. And uh, he said, those are my brothers. And, you know, they're missing.
3: Chameleon is a production of Campside Media with Sony Music. Wild Boys was reported and written by me, Sam Mullins. It's produced by Abhikara Don, and our editor is Karen Duffin. Our senior producer is Ashley Ann Krigbaum. Sound design and mixing by Hannes Brown and Garrett Tiedemann. Original music by Hannes Brown, Epidemic Sound and Blue Dot Sessions. Our fact checker is Alex Yablon. Additional production support on this episode by Lydia Smith. Special thanks to our operations team, Doug Slaywin, Aliyah Papes, and Allison Haney. The executive producers at Campside Media are Matt Scher, Vanessa Gregoriadis, Josh Dean, and Adam Hoff. If you or someone you know is struggling with your relationship with food, please know you're not alone. There are free, confidential helplines with people just waiting to help. In the U.S., you can call or text the National Eating Disorder Association at 1-800-931-2237. That's 1-800-931-2237. In Canada, the National Eating Disorder Information Center hotline is 1-866-633-4220. That's 1-866-633-4220. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.